0: to Pod Save the UK. I'm Coco Khan.
1: And I'm Nish Kumar.
0: Nish Kumar from afar. Yes,
1: I am at home due to having contracted the no longer novel coronavirus. Uh, I've gone full 2020. I am baking banana bread and watching the Tiger King.
0: (laughs) But where were you before this happened? Because we've been on recess, right? So where have you been?
1: Coco, I've had an eventful couple of weeks. Uh, uh, The last time we were recording in a studio together... I uh, mentioned that I'd injured myself playing football. Mm -hmm. Uh, It turns out I'd broken my hand. Uh, I'd broken my finger. I went to uh, A&E on the Isle of Wight and um, the nurse attempted to reset my finger and I uh, refused pain medication because I thought it can't be that bad. I didn't even notice it was broken. I then fainted like a Victorian woman (laughs) who needed vapors to be brought back around because she'd spied a gentleman's ankle. (laughs) Um. So then I now st- I, so I was going to now have to have an operation on my hand
0: Oh wow, an operation Yeah,
1: and then in the middle of that I went to the Edinburgh Fringe I, I don't know how well listeners will be How familiar listeners will be With the uh, Edinburgh Fringe venues But they are all disease bunkers <laughs> And so I guess if I was going to If I was going to get COVID anywhere At the moment um, It was likely to be at uh, the Edinburgh Fringe uh, So mixed bag for me I do think it's worth noting that uh, the particular hand that it is means that I got injured by turning too enthusiastically to the left. So in many ways, (laughs) it remains consistent with my own personal brand.
0: I'm glad you also have that thing where just the direction left makes you think of politics. I have that every time I hear Beyonce. You know, she's like, to the left, to the left. I'm like, yeah, Beyonce, to the left.
1: Um, how was your honeymoon? I assume you've had a nicer fortnight than I have
0: I mean i'm I'm very conscious to not be that un, insufferable gap ya yeah, person that's like, yeah, I've just come back from Vietnam you know I'm very changed found myself behind the bins, which is you know all true. <laughs> but what I would say about this is as you know I've long held this uh I you might say conspiracy, but I I think of it as a as a fact, which is that toilet paper is a scam. And being out there really one hundred percent confirmed that to me. What toilet do you mean paper. toilet
1: paper is a scam,
0: babe? It doesn't work.
1: Yeah. It, it does
0: not. You do not have a clean butt after your interaction with toilet paper. That's just a fact. That's just what happens. It's bad for the planet. All those trees for your butt. I think this is uh, okay. Let's just go full tinfoil hat. Is this an anglophonic world conspiracy? That's oh, all I'm saying.
1: Listen, I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, I The the idea that you could clean faeces off any surface by sort of waving dry tracing paper near it is unfathomable.
0: It's crazy, right? It's absolutely mad.
1: You have to get water involved.
0: I think there's this kind of, again, like, you know, English-speaking uh, sort of snootiness about it, about, like, you know, people in far-off places when, that are backwards. But, I mean, you know... Italians do it. The, the French do it. Loads of people do it. We're the outliers in Britain. We're the weird ones for not doing it.
1: I've so. I have, I've have a surprisingly long routine in my <laughs> most recent touring show about this exact subject. Really, and it's a nation of people without with unclean asses queuing at the post office. And <laughs> but also, if you if you've ever been on a Japanese toilet, you'll know those things are the future. Yeah, like that. you can basically call in a drone strike on your own arsehole. Like it's unbelievable. <laughs> What I want is a Japanese toilet, but I don't have one yet. But that's my long term goal.
0: Well, I tried to I mean, this is this is the most local conversation I think we've ever had on this podcast but I tried to speak to a plumber about it and he was like oh I can't do that love can't do that it's against building regs in what way is a clean butt against (laughs) building regs and that is do you know we always talk about like small p politics on this podcast that my friend that's the political sign me up for that clean butts that's what I want
1: why is this the only thing you (laughs) thought about when you went to Vietnam Coco
0: I thought about other things. I mean, it was a genuinely very profound experience. What else
1: happened? We've (laughs) pretty much run out of our allotted time for (laughs) pre-politics personal life conversation. And we spent most of it talking about my broken hand (laughs) and your spotless backside.
0: This is what the people sign up for. But, you know, the the honeymoon was great. We went to six different destinations in two weeks, so it was quite full on. I thought of you, actually, because um, I went to the war museum and it was it was horrifying to see all these artifacts of a very very brutal war and I had a little cry in the stairwell because I was so sad that humans could do that to each other and then afterwards I was like why would you go to a war museum on your honeymoon (laughs) who does that and I thought yeah Nish would do that
1: 100%. (laughs) 100% I didn't even bat an eyelid
0: Coming up next, we'll be speaking to immigration lawyer Jacqueline McKenzie. She's received online hate and threats after being targeted by Conservative HQ in an attempt to discredit lawyers involved in blocking their Rwanda deportation scheme.
1: Plus, commentator Grace Blakely on whether it's a good idea for us to have a prime minister who's richer than the king.
0: So while we were away on our holidays, the government stage, it's Small Boats Week, a very confusing term, I must confess. I normally hear about, you know, organised weeks as a way to, you know, increase acceptance, awareness, National Adoption Week, Pizza Week. I'm not really sure what Small Boats Week was about, but maybe Xenophobia Week wasn't available just by virtue of it being every single week. But nonetheless, it was a disaster.
1: The boats kept coming with tragic results. Migrants lost their lives in both the Mediterranean and then in the Channel. And the boats still kept coming. 500 people arrived on one day alone.
0: Meanwhile, the Bibby Stockholm barge, the government's answer to housing asylum seekers, turned into a farce. The first asylum seekers went on board and then had to leave because Legionella bacteria had been discovered.
1: And the Conservative Party's rhetoric reached new depths. I mean, in fairness, every time we think we've reached the bottom of this thing, they somehow find new ways to excavate even further depths of morality and basic decency. Lee Anderson, who's the deputy chairman of the party and sort of twat without portfolio, seemingly, <laughs> told The Express that the asylum seekers should fuck off back to France if they didn't want to be housed on a barge. He was backed by various Tory cabinet members, including Justice Secretary Alex Chalk and Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick. The MP for Ashfield then told his fellow GB News presenter, Nigel Farage, that he has no regrets over his language. It makes me sick to the pit of my stomach when these lefty lawyers, the, the
2: charities, the human rights campaigners, saying it's not good enough. And like I say, if it's not good enough, then it should go back to France. In stronger words. Uh,
1: Meanwhile, the MP Diane Abbott, who's currently suspended by the Labour Party, had to quickly delete a responding tweet that referenced the dead asylum seekers. Why? Because what's better than a single standard? A double standard. (laughs)
0: Uh, So Brotherman has been waging war on what she's called crooked lawyers, announcing a task force to look at dodgy immigration lawyers. That seems to be going hand in hand with a wider campaign to bully and discredit legitimate lawyers working on behalf of asylum seekers and charities who have been challenging government policy in the courts. Uh, Deportation flights to Rwanda have been suspended since June last year, with the Supreme Court due to rule on whether the flights are lawful in the autumn. Jacqueline McKenzie is a partner and head of immigration and asylum law at the firm Lee Day. She spent much of her career working on behalf of victims of the Windrush scandal, but she's also been the target of a smear campaign by Conservative Party HQ. They sent out an inaccurate briefing about her work to the right-wing press, and it described her as a senior Labour advisor and a lefty lawyer blocking Rwanda deportations. This week, a group of 100 prominent black and brown women issued a letter of support. Uh, it called out conservative governments for willfully empowering a vicious right-wing mob to spew violence against a black woman. Thank you so much for joining us, Jacqueline. What have these past weeks been like for you?
3: Uh, quite horrendous in many ways. When a previous Home Secretary spoke out about, you know, or went on the on a rant about lefty lawyers, a colleague of mine Tufai Hussein was stabbed. Um, there is a murder trial, an attempted murder trial rather, pending um next April. So we can't say anything more about that. Mm. But you know, the government is aware that, you know, they are putting people at risk. So obviously I've had to take measures, um, because we know that there is intelligence about potential risk. Um and so you know it's made my life very very difficult you know where i go at the moment um things that i've had to do to my house the patterns of work i mean that and that may go on for years it may go on for the rest of my life so that it's a life changing moment mm. in a very very serious way for me my colleagues and also for my family but it's heartening to see that you know overwhelmingly People in the UK and overseas, I've had calls and messages and emails and people on Twitter from all around the world saying this is not acceptable. Mm. And one of my favorite bits of interaction has been from a pensioner who described herself as a lifelong Tory and was offering me her pension for the week to treat myself with <laughs>
0: That is uh, so beautiful in, in what is genuinely quite a horrific story. Yes, uh, it's, it's not really how horrific. you expect uh, a political system to be to be behaving. Can I just ask you, when did you first realise that your name had been included?
3: Well, on Saturday morning, I just noticed that two journalists had followed me on Twitter. Um, one was from the mayor, one was from the Sun. And I thought, hold on a moment here, something's brewing <laughs> and they want my opinion on something. That was my first thought. Hmm. And then I got a text uh, from the Telegraph. I text back and I said, well, you know, send me an email. Tell me what's going on. What's this all about? And he did. And then with the ones on Twitter, they then said, look, we want to talk to you. We're writing a story about you. I thought about me, (laughs) you know, I was quite stunned. They all said almost the same words. We've been sent a dossier um about you and we're writing a story about you. And some of them went on in the email to explain what was in it. You know, you represent Jamaican criminals or you're trying to stop Rwanda or, you know, you've done this, that and the other. So 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 there was that flavor. So I knew that there was going to be this major story coming out. And they were all from the Sunday versions of those papers. So I knew that the Sunday papers were going to have a story of me. I didn't at the time realise it was just about me. (laughs) I thought maybe they'd just been looking at various lawyers who've been operating in this space and doing the sort of human rights work that touches on deportation, Rwanda and so on. And... Initially I thought, well, maybe it's Windrush, you know, the government hates what we're doing on Windrush and they're wanting to shut it down before people have had justice. So I initially thought, well, it's not really going to be a bad thing, because you know, everybody knows that I'm one of the main people that speaks out about Windrush, you know, and I'm one of the people that's got the most cases on it. So I, you know, but then they started coming back and asking for questions and they kept saying, No, you you're you're part of the Labour movement, aren't you? Part of Labour. I mean, you're hired by... And I I kept saying to them, well, I'm not actually hired by Labour. I have a voluntary role on a committee. And I try to also say to them, I've also done similar things with the Conservatives. (laughs) And uh, they weren't interested. So this was effectively a hit on Labour. Coming from, we now know, a special advisor to the Home Secretary, Swana Braverman. We now know that for a fact. Um, And so what you had... Was the Conservative Party liaising with a high office of state using confidential information that they've obtained from the files of home office clients to actually run a hit on somebody who in the scheme of things isn't really something, you know, that important. I certainly don't see myself as being that important. It was extraordinary. But I really am serious when I say what they obviously did. Venn diagram, Keir Starmer in the middle. Hmm. Who can we link to him who we could also link to Rwanda, small boats, Bibi Stockholm, deportations, wind rush and whatever. And it was me. Gosh, it's horrible
0: when you see... The thinking laid out in in that way. It's the, yes. the opportunism of it, especially given that you have actually worked quite closely with the government. I'm sure in a way that they would prefer you didn't because it's, uh, it's their scandal and, you know, they messed up. Um, I do think it's worth just saying to our listeners that um, in terms of the accusations about helping, uh, you know, Jamaican criminals or that the work you did to prevent a man from being put onto a Rwanda uh, Miranda Flight was proven to be completely justified um, by a subsequent medical report. Um, but I, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, just for our listeners who don't really understand the legal system, why is this unprecedented and what does it mean for just due process in general?
3: Um, well, it's not necessarily unprecedented because there have been attacks on lawyers, um, with this government and the previous government, I mean, you, you, considerable attacks. You know, um, the term "lefty lawyers" mm. was, uh, you know, that's come into our vernacular just very recently in the last few years. And as I said, you know, there was an attack, and you know, people have had eight mail. I've had eight mail. Um, every time I speak out in the media, I'll get one or two emails coming in from somebody telling me go back to where I've come from, or. <laughs> Something of that, or or sometimes worse. With this one, it's been worse. You know, people wanted to drown me and do all sorts of things. Um, but um but but what I think was unprecedented in this case is that it was targeted at a named person. It wasn't just, you know, lefty lawyers or a blob of lefty lawyers mm. or activists. It was me, Jacqueline McKenzie, who was an enemy of the state. Um, so to speak, as a black woman who is working against the state. That was the message they wanted to get out there. And it's certainly a message that has resonated with the far right, both in the UK and Europe, from intelligence we've had, Hmm. where some of the attacks on me are now coming from. And those attacks at the moment are via email and Twitter and so forth. And that's exactly what the government wanted to do. And that is unprecedented. The response to it's also unprecedented, that major organisations and major individuals, including Conservatives, you know, Lord Garnier, D- D- Dominic Grieve, have also said this is egregious, it's unacceptable to behave. So, so this is what makes it, I think, um, a different sort of level. It's, and, 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 you know, the journalists were saying they've got a dossier and the briefing on me is four pages. It's it's this. I know this is a podcast, but you can see it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's four pages of script. This is what was sent. And, right. you know, there's my picture in it as well, in the dossier. My goodness me. And, yes, yeah, so um, so that was what was sent. And it went right back to the 1980s where I'd belonged to a, a sort of Caribbean sort of, well, they called it Marxist, but it was a sort of social democratic group. It went right back to there. It looked at speeches I'd made tweets, you know, where I'd said anything anti-government and that sort of thing. Um, and what they were effectively trying to do was to get me into trouble with compliance, with the law society, because am I a campaigner or am I a lawyer? Which hat am I really wearing? Mm-hmm. Uh, to out me as a sort of um, anti-British values type or person and present me as somebody who's frustrating uh, the Home Office's plans to remove people to Rwanda, to deport people to other countries, to stop the small boats from coming, to prevent people from going on board the Bibi Stockholm barge, all of that. And, and, and what was other, what was interesting about the timing of it, they timed it to come out the same week that they had this big story about these three uh, immigration firms who were caught Saying to people, we can help you doctor your evidence. So you yes. know, firms which have been involved in what appears—I haven't, I don't know the full evidence—or or, or you know, or or know the firms. One of them I know of, I don't know them well, but there was this expose, and they appear to have been caught on camera charging asylum seekers ten thousand pounds in order to help them present a narrative. Um, to the Home Office to get some, not something we agree with at all, not something we will ever do. But what they did was to launch that story and the one about me at the same time. And one of the journals actually had the stories on the same pages. So some of the hate mail that I've received have posited me in that story, you know, when you're corrupt and you're coaching people to, you know, I hardly do any asylum claims. In fact, yeah. I've got one at the moment, <laughs> you know, but I'm coaching a science seekers to rig the system, you know, it's and that's what the government wanted.
0: Yeah, you like I said, you was earlier. You know, you could see the thinking, and you know, they sort of laid the groundwork with the lefty yes. lawyers exposé, and then they sort mm-hmm. of go for. I mean, this is not probably that relevant, but I did law A level. I, I once had right. a dream of being a lawyer, and I remember yeah. at the time <laughs> my uh, my my sort of teachers being like, you know, the legal profession is is dominated by. Oxbridge graduates, it's actually quite posh and it's actually quite white and it's quite right wing. So I was like, oh, lefty lawyers, what? (laughs) I'm like, I mean, everybody who's had any proximity would say actually
3: it's kind of the other way around. Well, it's a shame that they put you off in that way because you'd have made a great lefty lawyer, I'm sure, a great
0: lawyer.
3: I mean, that's what they do to all of us. I mean, I was told oh, you'll never make it. So, you know, yeah. we, we get that, don't we?
0: So, Jacqueline, I want to read to you the Conservative Party statement about this. I'm sure you've come across it, but I'd just love oh. to get your response. A Conservative Party spokesperson said, the idea that lawyers should be exempt from criticism is incompatible with a free society. The Lord Chief Justice, the head of the judiciary in England and Wales, has himself voiced concerns that a minority of lawyers have engaged in vexatious representations and abusive late legal challenges to frustrate removals. What do you think about that?
3: Well all of that may well be the case. I am sure, as in all professions, there are people who don't play by the book. And across the legal profession, not just in immigration and human rights, there may well be lawyers who chance it. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not one of those. And by producing that statement which is almost as though they're trying to make it sound as though I'm one of those. If there was a single case that they could find where there was evidence. And remember, this is the state They have access to everything, don't Mm. they? They could have found a case that I had brought that I shouldn't have brought or a case where I had coached somebody when I shouldn't have done. Or if I had done anything wrong or corrupt, because I play by the book, that would have been the story. But when you look at the story, it's my one chap uh, (laughs) who we stopped from going to Rwanda, who a home office doctor in an immigration detention centre said had signs of being a victim of torture mentally and physically. And that's why we took the case. He was one of the seven men shackled, ready to go to Rwanda. You know, that was the worst case they could find because his index offence was a kidnap. I am not saying for one minute that this is a nice man, but Mm. he was here as a child. He's our criminal. He's done his time. He's entitled. There is a right of appeal against deportation. And that's what he was doing. He was exercising it. He cannot do that himself. He needs a lawyer. That was my case. And what they fail to also tell you in that case, this is a man who's just had damages from the Home Office because of something that happened to oh, him. Wow. So, you know, so they don't tell you the full story.
0: So do you think there's an element of, of vengeance here that the government know exactly who you are? It's not just about lefty lawyers, but also they know who you are and your victories against them and they're, they're out for blood.
3: Yeah, I think there was definitely that. I mean, of course, they really, their main target was labor. They wanted to damage uh, Keir Starmer. And so I was the link to him. So we must never forget that. However, I was, I was the best person they could find because they would have wanted to, da- or they want to damage me too, because I am um, vocal and we're very successful. Um, in highlighting the problems with Windrush. Windrush is my work. It's funny, in this four-page dossier, the word Windrush isn't mentioned at all. And yet that's 90% of my work that it has been for the last five years. I mean, I interestingly, the team that's actually involved in the Rwanda JR Challenge is 99.9% white. And they didn't go for them. They went for me. That's not involved in the JR Challenge yeah. at all. So I think it really was an opportunity to silence me, uh, who is this uppity black woman hmm. who dares speak out,
0: Jackie? I do have to let you go in a, a moment, but just really quickly, do you think you might take action against the government for this? You know, I, I have visions of you suing them for defamation.
3: Well, I can't say exactly what we're doing at the moment. Um, there are various legal teams assembled, and we are looking at options, and we have made some requests for some more information from them. So um, watch this space. Oh,
0: well, that is the perfect way to end this. Thank you so much for your time, Jacqueline. I really appreciate it. And uh, keep up the Lord's work.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Pod Save the UK is brought to you by Even the Royals on Wondery.
0: When you take a closer look at what it means to be royalty, you'll see that it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head.
1: On Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, they pull back the curtain on royal families, past and present, from all over the world. And you can listen for free wherever you get your podcasts.
0: From one of the most infamous royals in history, Marie Antoinette. But everything you know about her is wrong
1: or Catherine de' Medici. History branded her as a cold and power-obsessed manipulator, saying she was responsible for one of the most devastating massacres in French history. But she was an orphan who spent her life as a powerless hostage, and her determination to rise to power led her to some dark places and some desperate measures.
0: Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus.
2: The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's stay out of my swamp for Florida, stay out of my hole for Arizona, stay out of my prickly pear for Texas, and stay out of my strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's f Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop.
0: So joining us in the studio now is Grace Blakely. She's an uh, economics and political commentator, a writer at Tribune magazine and an author of several books. And I've just learned now, a keen surfer.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, That is something that I picked up whilst I was away for the last nine months, just kind of chilling and ignoring everything that was going on here and being on the beach and surfing quite badly, but still. Also developing biceps. Actually, (laughs) genuinely, yes. Like... It's amazing, A, how good exercise is, and also how good it is to feel strong. Oh. Like, now I go to the gym and I do, like, weights and, like, strength training, and I'm like, oh, I feel like such a badass. I love it. It's
0: like everyone I know that's been surfing has come back sort of talking about, like, how beautiful it is yeah. to the great outdoors, you know, the strength, the connection to the waves. But I just look at it and I'm like, oh, she's going to die, mate. Yeah, it's
1: pretty scary <laughs>
4: sometimes, <laughs> genuinely. <laughs>
1: There is a a company in Australia that I believe has probably had to change its key slogan. Uh, The slogan was, um, if we can teach a dog to surf, we can teach you. And (laughs) What happened 20 years ago, that company now legally cannot be trading under that slogan.
0: Hilarious. Is that because it was too hard to train a dog?
1: No, it's but uh, I I I thought I, I I'd made my implication clear, Coco. It was because it was too hard to train me. The, <laughs> the, hev- the heavy implication of the circumstance is that I was worse at surfing than a dog.
4: <laughs> oh. The dog had probably had loads of practice, though. Nish, I wouldn't beat yourself up. So we've
0: had some good news as we record this. The headline on BBC News Online is that. UK inflation falls sharply for a second month to 6.8%. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says the figures show that the government's plans are working somehow. Um, you know, Chancellor Jeremy Hunnett said we're not at the finish line. I didn't even know they were in this race. <laughs> Grace, is there a problem with the way these stats are being reported? You know, we're seeing these words like cut, dropped. Yeah, well, I go to the supermarket and it's still £5 for a Tropicana.
4: So, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, there is a, a, an astonishing amount of kind of just like irresponsibility, I think, with the way that certain uh, headlines are, are produced and reproduced. So obviously, there's the whole inflation has fallen thing. A lot of people think, oh, right, well, that means that prices aren't going up anymore. Of course, inflation is uh, a measure of the rate of the increase in prices. So it's you know the um, percentage according to which things are going up each month or, you know, whatever. Um, So when that rate slows, it means things are increasing at a slower rate. For um, prices to stabilize, inflation would have to be zero. And for prices to fall, we would have to have deflation, which economists worry about for different reasons, but we'll not go into that right now. Generally speaking, you know, what we would see is that inflation would rise and then peter off to a more manageable level. Inflation of kind of between like 1%, 2%, 3% generally doesn't worry people too much, doesn't worry policymakers too much. In fact, the Bank of England has a target to keep inflation at around 2%, basically. The other thing that I saw today, um, which was, you know, irresponsible in the same vein, was this idea that wages have gone up for the like at the most yeah. since records began. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. of course, that was not adjusted for inflation at all. And when in- adjusted, in- adjusted for inflation, they've actually fallen in real terms again. Um, a lot of this is kind of hard to understand i think you know the idea of like the rate of change of a variable is often difficult to get one's head around um but ultimately this is not we're not in a good situation at all like part of the reason that inflation is starting to fall off is because the bank of england decided to raise interest rates which with the the aim basically of like slowing down the economy and for that reason we're seeing unemployment rise now so it, things aren't looking good. I'm
0: glad to hear you explain that because you know what? Like, and, and I am loath to use the word gaslighting because it reveals that I've been on TikTok too long. But this <laughs> no, is a no. kind of economic gaslighting. This idea that someone, our leaders will stand up and say it's going well. and you're like, it, No, it isn't. I can feel, see. Yeah. I cannot take a train to Manchester. I mean, it is £200. Pounds. This <laughs> so, is actually a
4: really interesting point more generally, right? Because we have this idea as a public of this thing called the economy, right? Yeah. And the economy is something that exists out there. It's numbers, it's men in suits, it's big, you know, financial institutions in the city of London. And we measure it with things like GDP and, you know, inflation and whatever. And, you know, a a government minister will come on TV and they will say, line goes up, therefore good. (laughs) And you'll look at it and you'll be like, well... I haven't had a pay rise in over a decade. I can't afford to live anywhere. Public services are crumbling. And yet there is always this tone of optimism. There's some part of you that thinks, oh, well, the line's going up. So that means things must be getting better for me at some point. Maybe it will just take a while to filter down. And actually, we live in a world where that economy, in inverted commas, you know, the things that are measured in GDP statistics um, and many of the metrics that government ministers are fond of talking about, don't correlate particularly well with people's lives. Um, So I think we need to kind of really just break down this idea of the economy as something separate out there and actually start to think about measuring things that matter to people, measuring the, you know, people's living standards, basically, measuring wages, what we do measure wages, but actually talking about that as a a key economic and social statistic um, rather than the situation that we have now. And if you did that, then it would become clear that we, in many ways, have a kind of um, a split economy. So we have, uh, you know, it, let's say, uh, often, you know, economics programs or, or news programs will say, the stock market's gone up today, right? And then you'll think, oh, great, the stock market's gone up. So that'll mean that GDP will go up, which will mean, I'll, you know, my wages will go up or whatever. But it's in many ways, completely disconnected. It's not completely disconnected, but it is largely disconnected from what most people are going to experience on a daily basis. If instead we were we were focusing not just on, is the line going up? Like, are the things that powerful people want us to think about, um, rising or falling or good or bad, are the metrics that actually matter to us and impact our lives? What's happening to them? Then the the, the story would be very different.
0: Yeah and it was interesting to hear you talk about you know that idea of the the disembodied economy it's just this thing this this unknowable object that we can't touch and things happen to it and we should all be very happy about it. Like it's weather almost mm. in some ways. But who actually is responsible? Because that's something we really care about on this podcast is about accountability, right? Yeah. So, you know, on the one hand, the government claimed credit for the slow in inflation, but equally they say they can't be blamed for rising inflation. Who actually is in control of the economy? Who should, we, <laughs> who should be held to
4: account? Again, this is a, this is a really important point because, you know, the whole idea of setting up this thing called the economy... And talking about the economy and and GDP growth and inflation is that we're supposed to believe that nobody is in control of the economy. And in a way, that's true because there is no one person or institution that controls things like the rate of inflation, GDP growth, you know, even even employment, right? Um, A lot of those things have to do with economic processes that take place on the global level. So, you know, inflation obviously, to begin with, was driven by lots of different variables, including the uneven recovery from the pandemic, um, supply chain problems, shipping costs, the war in Ukraine, all these different things came together at a global level and put inflation up for everyone. Um, But there are certain actors within the global economy that are better able to respond to and shape the way that those dynamics are felt by most people than others. So, you know, we shouldn't be thinking who's in control of the economy? That kind of gets you into like weird, you know, the World Economic Forum presses a button and then, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff happens territory, which obviously isn't true. But equally, we don't want to go down this line of, oh, the economy is just some abstract thing that exists out there. And it's, as you say, like the weather and nobody really controls it because there are powerful institutions, whether we're talking about governments or central banks or actually even corporations and financial institutions that are disproportionately able to shape who gets what and the best way to think about this is just to look at you know look at the financial crisis right you know we got like the average person got hit with austerity maybe lost their jobs saw their wages go down public services decimated massive banks got bailed out and insulated from the consequence of their actions that's a big economic shock but it affected different people differently based on their proximity to the powerful, right? It was the same with the cost of living crisis. Um, So, you know, massive corporations got huge bailouts all around the world. Big financial institutions got big bailouts. Um, You know, mortgage holders who are obviously an important demographic, particularly for a conservative government, people who are in their own homes, got some relief. And then lots of other people got, got very little or basically nothing. And even when they, they did get support that ended up being recycled into the pockets of the powerful. So let's say, you know, um, relief for tenants ended up benefiting landlords. Um, employment relief was obviously paid often to, to companies. Um, so it ended up, you know, benefiting like the powerful rather than actually ending up um, supporting rising living standards, which we obviously didn't see during the pandemic. Um so yeah, we have to, I think, really like uh look at the the decision making processes that are taking place within these big institutions to say who is deciding how we respond to inflation and why, right? And when you look at that, it's it's very clear that those decisions are being made in the interests of that. Abstract idea of the economy, which is basically, you know, um, like rates of uh, of growth generally in like in in profits. Like as I've said, kind of, are stock prices going up? Um, how much does it cost for businesses to to borrow? Um, what are the barriers to to them expanding and, and those sorts of things? Um, rather than what is going to make ordinary people's lives better, because this interest rate story is is a really good example of that. Um, inflation went up. And the only way that the the central bank decided that they would respond to that was by raising interest rates. What does that do? The idea is that you raise interest rates, you make it more expensive for businesses to borrow. That means they're less likely to employ workers, which means unemployment goes up, which means workers feel less confident in demanding wage increases because they're scared of losing their jobs. So wages come down and then inflation comes down. Now, That obviously is affecting inflation through the mechanism of making people lose their jobs. And that isn't the only way you could do that. We know now that inflation is actually being driven more by corporate profits than it is by wage increases. And actually wages haven't been increasing in real terms. But
0: on that point about accountability, that's how do you hold corporate profits and those who decide, how do you hold them to account? Tax
4: them or, you know... Price limits or um, windfall taxes, for example, like you know, we we had that uh, art, that idea of the windfall tax on. Uh, on big oil company profits um, floated during the pandemic. That's a a good way of dealing with the the massive super profits that those companies have. how do you do that
0: when none of the parties are saying they're going to do that?
4: Well, I mean, how does one do it? It's a different question to, will they do it? It's very possible to do it. And it's important that we know it's possible (laughs) to do it because politicians will say, oh, it's impossible. We can't do that. Leave it to the central bank, whatever. Um, But obviously, you know, any form of political change that isn't in the interest yeah. of, like, the people running the country is going to take grassroots organisation. Um, and, yeah, that is, uh, that's a whole other question. We can get into that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I do think it's really important that there is more... Media literacy around economics, and and, and 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 I know I'm sort of slightly I, I'm slightly wasting my breath saying that to you, Grace. Given that that's ninety nine percent of what you do <laughs> on a weekly basis is go on these shows and desperately trying to uh, explain that the statistics. You can't just say things are going up; it's better. Yeah the the wage statistic is such an odd thing because. it's odd for two reasons. Because given that the inflation is not actually going down, our real wages have fallen by 0.6%. So in a sense, it's kind of an irrelevance. Also, I do strongly feel that if you're claiming that the pay rise has been the highest since records began, you should be forced to say the year that you started <laughs> <and> recording those <laughs> records. And in this case, it is 2001. And I don't think you can talk about historic wage rises if your history only goes back to the year Destiny's Child released survived. <laughs> like, I think there's so many important pieces of information. So with that in mind, and with us having somebody on the show that understands the uh, information behind these statistics and the real world ramifications. Do you see any meaningful light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the cost of living crisis? Does Does any of this... Uh, Rishi Sunak is obviously going to want to say that this shows that their, their situation is working. We know that the man's talking bollocks. Mm. Does any of this translate to real world benefits for ordinary people?
4: I think it comes back to what I was saying about interest rates um, because part of the reason that we've brought inflation down... So inflation was initially caused by all of these, you know, big global macroeconomic factors that I've spoken about. And then it becomes embedded... For one of two reasons, basically. Either because workers say, right, we want wage increases in line with inflation and bosses give them wage increases in line with inflation. That has not happened this time. It only ever happens when you've got really strong bargaining power and there are unions that are able to say... we we demand this from bosses and we don't have that at the moment. Unions have been kind of decimated and are only just beginning to make their way back. So instead, the second mechanism was that corporations basically took advantage of an environment of rising prices to say, we're going to raise our costs even more. And of course, you as a consumer, when you go and buy a loaf of bread, you don't know how much the price of wheat has gone up on like wholesale markets. So it's quite easy if there is a a corporation that has a stranglehold over its market or a really, you know, powerful competitive position in its market to say, we're actually going to increase prices more than we need to. And you saw that in a lot of sectors, particularly where there's lots of corporate power, i.e. where there's a small number of very powerful corporations. And the way that we've responded to inflation, the way that central banks have responded to inflation, assumes the first scenario rather than the second scenario. So it assumes that it's greedy workers pushing up inflation by demanding wage increases. And it basically punishes them um, by saying, we're going to make some of you unemployed for the good of the economy. Um, Again, for the good of the economy, in inverted commas, i.e. for the good of like the most powerful and wealthy people at the very top of the economy. Um, So that's now why we're seeing a slight a kind of inflation falling off it's because basically the bank of england decided we are going to cool down the economy by pushing up unemployment and trying to curtail um the bargaining power of workers and that in indicates where things are going potentially um which is that you will start to see increases in unemployment and over time um wage increases that we're seeing in you know like nominal wage growth which is different to real wage growth um, will start to fall off once again and you may even start to see wages falling quite significantly in real terms again and bear in mind that workers didn't have they had 10 years without a pay increase on average after the financial crisis during COVID there were um, periods where you saw massive you know the biggest drop in in wages since records began and actually it was things since like the 1970s or something there was a period actually when wages fell the, the most in a certain period since World War II that was the trade union congress that, that announced that data um, and it is likely that you will start to see that sort of thing happening again um, if we continue to see big increases in interest rates and basically central banks and policy blaming workers for a problem that's being caused by big corporations that's fucking bleak man. I mean I'm sorry okay <laughs> look the other <laughs> thing I want to <laughs> say <Bleak>. right <laughs> it is it, it kind of is bleak and it's difficult to not be bleak at the moment because, like, if you're being sunny and optimistic, you're being sunny and optimistic about a system that is fundamentally broken. Like, how am I going to say, even if we did see a slight increase in wages, it's not going to make up for a decade of stagnant wages. So I don't want to be sitting here being like, oh, things are bad, you know, just go and feel sorry for yourselves. That's obviously not the point. It's actually to say, like, right, we know things are not going to get better so we need to organize to make sure that they do get better um
0: just on a on a I was going to say a lighter note but not really on a different note um <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about expensive meals Uh, Not least because Rishi Sunak has been in the news recently where apparently he ate at one of the most expensive uh, restaurants in America. He spent £12,000 at Disneyland, making the meal around £1,200 a head. What's the most expensive meal you've ever eaten?
4: So, I think it was probably when my ex-boyfriend took me. We watched, do you remember that show? um, Was it called The Trip? And it had um, Steve Coogan and Rob... Oh, yeah! No, yeah. was, it, yeah, we, was, yeah. it,
1: was it Long Clume?
4: Huh? Yeah, yeah. And, um, was it Long Klume? Yes, it was. Yes, yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we yeah. went there um, in the Lake District. It's the one in the Lake District, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We literally went there and sat on the chef's table because we got really obsessed with that. With oh, shit, used to watch it. That was for my birthday. I obviously didn't end up paying for it, so I don't know how much it costs, But it's probably the fanciest meal I've ever had.
0: It would be pointless to limit this to things I've paid for because then we're just talking about. Nando's. Yeah. <laughs> it's just pointless. <laughs> but um, on a journalism jolly, I got invited of some like washing machine brand or some kitchen appliances brand and they built a pop-up a restaurant above the London South Bank Centre and they'd hired these like Michelin-starred chefs. I mean between the three of them, I think they had like twelve amongst them, and they were so depressed. <laughs> and it was like a chef's table with beautiful views over the over the um over the Thames and stuff. Wow. But I remember thinking, it's true that money can't buy you happiness, because <laughs> these guys <laughs> are fucking miserable. miserable. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. Nish, come on.
1: Well I mean given the fact that I was able to identify the restaurant great I say at Based on a, a, a... I think it's fair to say I've eaten some fancy... <laughs> the most expensive meal I've had was from Noma in Copenhagen. Oh,
4: wow. You've done the Noma uh, thing. Is that like the best restaurant in the world?
1: Yeah, apparently. yeah. I, I, I think, according to some metrics, it and was an bit. incredible, incredible meal. Really? Yes. Yeah, it is. It, it, I think it's actually shutting now, but it was... Um, it was a, it was a, it was a pretty incredible meal. I think it costs, and it's quite weird because you sort of pay in two increments. So you sort of have to pay half of it up front, and then you pay when you get there. But I think it's around six hundred quid. Oh <laughs> my! Oh, actually, yeah. I remember yeah. another
0: one. Um, I got taken to Paul Bacuse in France. And that was three hundred pounds. Again, wow. didn't pay, yeah. but yeah, yeah.
1: That- I, I thought it seemed like. Uh, I, I mean, it, it seems to me like wow, that's a lot of money. And then,
0: <laughs> and then you. <laughs> and
1: then I, The Disneyland restaurant. It absolutely blew my mind.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you know, I've seen this story about Rishi Sunak. He's had a family holiday in California. They've gone to Disneyland. They've enjoyed a meal at a very expensive Disneyland restaurant called 21 Royale. Uh, It costs about £12,000, sort of roughly that, £1,200 a head, um, and has been called America's most expensive dining experience. So we know that Rishi is rich. We know that. Uh, It's easy to forget how rich, though. He's richer than the monarch if you mention this, it makes you sound like you're engaging in politics of envy. Why does it matter? It's his private money. Shouldn't he be allowed to spend it as he as he, as he he wants? But I'd be interested to hear from both of you, like, does it matter? This I disconnect?
4: Mean, I think it matters that anyone is that rich. Like, I don't think anyone should be able to have that mo- much more money than the average person. Like, it should be corrected through the tax system. And goodness knows that Rishi and his family have had a certain amount of uh, of issues with the tax man. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone should should be that wealthy. I don't think we should have multi-multi-millionaires and certainly not billionaires. Um, yeah, I mean, it, like, it, there's this statistic that I think really brings this issue out, which is that, like... People really underestimate the extent of how much money a billion pounds is or a billion dollars is, um, because it's an unimaginable amount of money. So a thing I like to say to kind of bring this into perspective is that it would to take to count the numbers to a million would take you 12 days. To count the numbers of to a billion would take you 32 years. Oh wow. Like it's so much money. And the thing with that amount of money is that money and and power and influence at a certain level become fungible is the word that is coming into my mind but I know that that is not a word that most people are familiar with they become like you can swap one for the other basically yeah. they they kind of become inter- interchangeable that's a better word yeah it, it basically means that you can kind of pay for influence right um, and that could be paying for influence in the form of being able to pay someone to do things for you, which is like on the most benign level, it's like you're literally, you know, paying for someone to come in and like provide for all of your earthly needs in your household or whatever, all the way through to like paying people off or like, you know, buying way into certain institutions or currying favour with certain people. Um, and I think that's the real perspective that we need to have when we're looking at it. It's that like, you know, wealth and power are in our society to a certain extent interchangeable you can swap one for the other and so we shouldn't have someone so much more wealthy than the average person because we shouldn't have so much someone with so much more power than the average person
1: well obviously what you've said grace is correct there's a wider socioeconomic question about how much wealth is simply too much wealth but i also just think i do think it matters for him politically mm. because i think he has told people that they need to tough it out yeah essentially. That was the phrase that was being bandied around, tough it out, and that uh, he was on the radio urging people to extend their mortgages by 10 or 15 years in order to make ends meet. And equally in the last couple of weeks there has been a slight usage of his family uh, as a kind of political prop. I'm thinking Mm. specifically of him tweeting about, uh, and I I actually will confess, I'd never seen a picture of his kids before, because also, why would you? They're young children. Mm. But the only time reason I've seen a picture of his kids is because he tweeted his a picture of his wife and children coming out of the Barbie film and it clearly feels like a political tactic to push him as a father and a husband more to the forefront. I also don't want to get too specific on this because I would be breaking confidences, but he has been offered as a guest to parenting podcasts. I'm saying no more than that. i sake of breaking confidences. But so there's clearly a push in the Conservative Party to uh, have him be seen as a family man. Mm. And I don't think, he, I think in that situation, if if you kind of open yourself up to that, it's probably not something he wants to do, really, because his family situation is so far removed mm. from the rest of the country, which matters if what he's telling the rest of the country is that they just need to knuckle down and eat their least favourite child. <laughs>
4: I was not prepared for the end of that sentence.
2: (laughs) The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing Collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona. Stay out of my prickly pear for Texas and stay out of my strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Uh, Before we go, uh Grace, thank you so much for joining us. And in recognition of our gratitude to you, we're going to bestow a very special honour uh, honor on you. You're the first guest we've ever asked to nominate the PSUK Hero and Villain of the Week.
4: I am so honoured, guys. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Um, Okay, so I've picked my villain. Okay. My villain. And I'd like to premise this, by the way, by saying that I analyze capitalism as a social structure where it creates incentives for people to behave in certain ways that they wouldn't in other places. And I don't like to individualize problems and just call people heroes and villains. But (laughs) in this one (laughs) context, I will say, my villain for the week is the CEO of ExxonMobil, Darren Woods. And the reason for this is that um, we've seen now that ExxonMobil made record profits last year Uh, It's one of the few big fossil fuel companies that actually said, we're not even going to try and diversify away from just fossil fuels. We're going to stick with it. And to add insult to injury, um, ExxonMobil is being sued in a number of different parts of the US because there's evidence that scientists knew about the impact of burning fossil fuels on the climate. As far back as the 1970s, they had internal reports that suggested climate breakdown was going to happen. And instead of actually raising the alarm, they cut funding for their research team and took all that money and channeled it into climate denialism. So they're a really bad company.
1: Yeah, it's it, it, there's an old movie called The Insider, which is about the... Uh, heads of tobacco companies who were found that it was found that they knew yeah. how addictive cigarettes were for years and years and they'd stood up for, I hope to God there's some sort of equivalent for that uh, with climate change because it that just be like, astounding uh, astounding piece of information yeah
0: also a thing that I've learned about ExxonMobil recently and perhaps it's uh, kind of categorization has changed but for a long time it had a really good ESG rating which was basically means it's like a, a sustainable business if you were someone who was interested in green investments you might end up <laughs> investing in oh ExxonMobil really? because they had it was just this is kind of getting boring and granular now but basically the way that you have this rating system you have to meet a set of criteria and ExxonMobil was really good at admin so it met all those criteria can you imagine if you were like I really want to do some green yeah, investing ESG is, like, is the don't worst Eyes. I mean, you know what I
4: mean? Like, I don't read my T's yeah. and C's either and then you're like, what the hell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, yeah, it's So, it's
1: people. Okay, no. but what about
4: your hero? My hero is someone that I actually know. Okay. Oh, that's <laughs> Shout nice. out to Michaela Loach, who's a climate <laughs> activist. I don't know if you guys know her. You should have her on the show. But this week, she and a bunch of other climate um, activists staged a walkout of her own event at the Edinburgh Fringe to protest the fact that um, Bailey Gifford was one of the sponsors of um, of the Edinburgh Fringe and has a certain amount um, of uh, its portfolio invested in dodgy... You know companies that were—I can't exactly remember which companies they um, were—they had investments in, but it was a small, small amount of their investment. Still, a certain amount invested in fossil fuels. So Michaela just gets up in the middle of her event and says, "I can't do this anymore. I'm storming out of my own event." And I just thought that was so badass. Like I loved watching it.
1: It was the Edinburgh Book Festival. So the book festival, the kind of starting gun for it happened when Greta Thunberg actually pulled out of an event. Oh, really? Um, But the walking out of your own event. I just it's love that, that. Is that is banging. so cool? <laughs> it would make a welcome change for me, who uh, where other audience members walk out in protest.
0: But <laughs> <in London. laughs> um, <laughs> I just want to give a shout out to the RNLI. I've been banging on about this these lot for ages. I feel sorry for all my friends that have to listen to me. I think it's because I grew up in East London, and I still have that like sort of childlike awe about nature. So oh, every time oh. I'm just like on the British coast, I'm like. Look at that sea, bro! It's so mad, <laughs> <laughs> so unknowable.
4: I feel like everyone feels like that when you look at the sea, though. <laughs> it's, I mean, pfft, it's, it's just wild, so isn't
2: it? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> um, anyway, having had those feelings and just ha- learning about the volunteers who are just average people who go mm. out every day onto that big, scary sea mm. to fish people out of the water you know, migrants included, refugees included, asylum seekers included, you know, they don't discriminate. You could be on a super yacht, you could be in a rubber diggy. They go out there and pull you out of the water regardless. I just think they're amazing. Mm. So just in the spirit of what we've been talking about, about the average person being able to form connection against all these horrible policies, I think, uh, yeah, I love the volunteers. And as it happens, never one to miss an opportunity for a prop here at Pod Save the UK. Hope you're watching this on YouTube, lads. I've got... An RNLI tea towel that I have been gifted by. Amazing. <laughs> I actually
4: also give money to the RNLI every oh, month and I think they're legends. I'm
0: doing a live yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing a live unboxing. unboxing.
4: Yeah, yeah, is um, this ASMR? Oh, we need to speak a lot
0: quieter. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to go next to my other uh, you know, tea towel collection which is basically just normal boring ones and one that's RuPaul's Drag Race.
4: Oh my goodness! Oh I my love God, that. Look, all the oh, different, all different boats. Oh. That is sick. I am so jealous. Or <laughs> in like if you're listening, can you send me one? And I will promise I will tweet about it so much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great. Let's take a dip into our mailbag, guys. Here's one for our alter egos. Me and Ish have some alter egos. I'm just telling Grace. Uh, we have this idea that we're political agony, uncles and aunts. Love it. We won't go into my problems with that phrase because I live (laughs) in the past and think I'm very young. Um, But anyway, Elle wrote in and emailed in with this question. They say, I'm a young person who is often alarmed by the state of the world and wants to do something to change it, but isn't quite sure how. I was wondering if any of you have any advice for young people getting into politics and activism. I visited my striking lecturers on the picket lines with baked goods and joined my uni Labour Society, who just seemed to book her on the WhatsApp more than anything else. Um, But I feel like there's more I could be doing. I'd welcome any advice. Grace,
4: what do you think? I love that. And I think this speaks to a lot of the stuff we've been talking already about the podcast. Um, So, yeah, I mean you know as much as i have loved engaging with labour party administrative processes it can be very boring other activism options are also available um yeah i mean i think as i've as i've said there's so many different ways of getting involved and it really depends on your priorities and your passions, where you're based. Uh, if, say, for example, you want to get involved in housing activism, there's lots of tenants organisations, um, like ACORN, the London Ren- London Renters Union, that um, that do organising on a local level. There's um, migrants' rights organisations that do that sort of thing as well. You can get involved in kind of disrupting deportations, that sort of stuff. Obviously loads of um, climate activism that goes on uh, through lots of different kinds of organisations mm-hmm. as well. Um, and also, if you're kind of more on like the nerdy side of things, things and you want to learn more about policy. There's just like so many events that go on, um, on like, you know, in progressive circles where there are people that come and come together to talk about issues and ideas, um, organized by all sorts of different things from like publishers like Verso to Navara to, you know, lots of different places. And for me, I found that as a really great way when I was first starting out of just like getting involved in organisations that were doing lots of different stuff and meeting people, having conversations, and then there'll be kind of organic stuff that happens where they like, come to this, go to that. Mm. I think it's really just about dipping your toe in that community. And it is a community of like activism and organising. Um, and things just tend to kind of snowball. The first thing though is, as we've said, it's just getting out of the house, getting involved with stuff and realising that you're not actually on your own.
0: Yeah, that sounds amazing. Do you think they need a, a DJ or...?
4: Probably, possibly. I'm suggesting myself. Are you isn't. a DJ?
0: Well, I like to. Spin.
4: That's sick. Oh, she she tries. Oh. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm I actually will... not very good at all. Um, I do. Also, know. firstly, don't say that because that's what women <laughs> say about everything. And yeah. we're like, oh, I do this thing. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll throw you, I'll throw your name in the ring if I hear of any DJ spots going. Cute. remember Chapati Smith? That's the name. Okay, great, okay, great, love it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, we um, have another question here, don't we, Nish?
1: Yeah, we've got another question from Max, uh, who says, Hi all, I love the podcast and I was hoping maybe you could help me out. I live in Weymouth, which is essentially attached to Portland, where the barge is. Is there anything I can do to help the people on board, seeing as it's within walking distance for me? Also, as a local, I'm in plenty of community groups for the area on Facebook, and this barge has brought out some of the most racist, vile shit in these groups. Mm. I'm wondering if you think it's worth engaging these people and pointing out where they are wrong, or is it pointless? Uh, he's also just quickly added, My boring real name is Max, but my online moniker and my most places is rancid nut. I understand <laughs> if you read this out and exclude that bit. Cheers, guys. Um, Grace, we should suggest we should say we've got quite fixated because people can comment in via YouTube. They forget that they're not giving us our real name. <laughs> and so we often get people's YouTube names. Love that. Ch- Chicken Nug Nugs is the leader so far. Amazing, but yeah. Yeah, it's, so there's a constant thing going. But look, um, I don't know what the value is in arguing with people on Facebook.
2: Oh, Um, no, yeah, not on Facebook. I think
1: that that is maybe maybe not the best use of your time. Um, But Stand Up to Racism Dorset has formed a specific offshoot group called the Portland Global Friendship Group who are seeking to provide aid like toiletry packs, maps of the local area and a communal helpline for asylum seekers if they want to engage with the community. Uh, And you can contact uh, Stand Up to Racism Dorset. They've got a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash S-U-T-R Dorset and their email address is s-u-t-r-dorset at gmail.com. Amazing.
0: Great. Well, lots of you enjoyed our bonus episode with the fabulous equality campaigner, Gina Martin. That went out last week while we were away. Both Joe Clark and Heidi called Gina a proper hero, while lots of you on TikTok have been trying to guess the name of the politician who she <laughs> said patted her on the head. <laughs> so Simon said, well, Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, he sounds like someone who would be that patronising. Kieran Kinsella replied to say, well... I feel like if he ever touches a poor person, he'd melt. (laughs) (laughs) So that's just to say, if you missed the episode with Gina Martin, you can find it on our feed.
1: And also, we don't know who the politician is. No, we don't. She didn't tell us. So we're as happy to be part of the baseless speculation. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Um, A couple of our international listeners have been touched about a chat we had about whether school kids signing each other's shirts at the end of the school year was something that happened in other countries as well. At Mob Bortimer on Twitter said, uh, reporting from Melbourne, signing shirts is a thing down here too. I'm still calling it Twitter. I can't bring myself to say on X. I I can't believe we live in a world in which the word Twitter is the less stupid of two options. Uh, And uh, in the YouTube comments, uh, someone called CBP and d has said, writing on a white shirt is not something I've seen in the US at the end of school. We get yearbooks. Do y'all do yearbooks in the UK? And we know they're American because... The yarl was not me editorialising. That's in the text. (laughs) Photos of the school year, all the students and clubs and teams as such. We usually get the last day for signing the blank pages in the back of each other's yearbooks. The one I always laugh about is people too lazy to write have a great summer, so they just write H-A-G-S. It's lazy and makes you wonder if they're insulting you.
0: I think you do need to say that spells hags.
1: It spells hags, yeah. I mean, we're sort of, I I think due to the sort of... um, uh, cultural monolith of American high school films as a genre. We're all pretty aware outside of America of the uh, yearbook thing. Yeah. But I don't, I, did either of you have yearbooks?
4: We no. got yearbooks at university. Did you say I you probably shouldn't say that because mine had some really horrendous stuff in there. Really?
0: Yeah. <laughs> like what? Can you I tell hope us?
4: that they're not generally accessible? <laughs> <laughs> oh god! When you say horrible stuff, you mean like
0: the photos look silly because we all look silly like, at that age. The
4: things that we wrote about each other were perhaps bringing up some events that had happened over the course of our three years <laughs> at university that are not safe for work What we talking Wait, consumption. Is it like, you know, Nat's got herpes? Like that uh, level of kind of urban... No, it's more things that really did happen oh, that are I not see? safe for work. <laughs> okay, well, you know, I think we... We all had fun at uni, guys. <laughs> yeah, Come we, on. We all did. We are not here
0: to defame, just to speculate. <laughs> if you want to
4: speculate about the things that I did at uni that are not safe for work, please feel free to do so.
0: <laughs> you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reduced listening.co.uk. We uh love your messages. We love voice messages. We like hearing your voices. You hear ours. Only seems fair. Uh if you'd like to do that, the number is 7514 644 572 Internationally, that's plus four four. Seven five one four six four four five seven two. If you're new to the show, remember to hit follow on your app and you'll get every new episode every week.
1: And finally, the British Podcast Awards has a public vote, which is the listener's choice. And if you'd like to vote for us, it's free and easy to do. Just go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting if you want to do that. I feel embarrassed about asking people to do that. So just if you don't want to do it, don't do it. This is why normally <laughs> I don't read this section of the show. <laughs>
4: I love the idea of you running for office and being like, please vote for me or don't, whatever. I don't carry the weight. You guys suck.
2: <laughs> I like the like emo flourish at the end. Yeah. Like, I hate you anyway. You don't understand me, I don't mom. care.
1: <laughs> I think it's on the list of reasons why I should never run for office. And that list is long. <laughs> that involves some photographs of the things I did at
4: university. <laughs> I'd still vote for you, mate. <laughs>
0: um, thank you so much, Grace Blakely.
1: Thank you so much, Thanks Grace Thanks for having me, guys. Absolute it was legend. a pleasure.
0: Thank you. Also, because Nish wasn't in the studio, so I would have been very Billy No Mates. Yeah. Now I've got a mate. I felt like I've replaced
4: him.
1: <laughs> Are
0: <laughs> you, you gonna... feeling threatened? You're feeling threatened. You should. You should.
4: <laughs>
1: um, thanks so much for uh, hanging out with us. Please join us again.
4: I'd love to. Pod
0: Save the UK is a reduced listing production for Crooked Media.
1: Thanks to senior producer Mustiezzi and digital producer Alex Bishop. Additional production assistance by Annie Keatstall.
0: Video editing was by David Kaplowitz and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos.
1: Thanks to our engineer, David Dagahi.
0: The executive producers are Louise Cotton, Dan Jackson, Madeleine Harringer and thanks to Crooked Media producer, Ari Schwartz.
1: Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter and TikTok where we're at Pod Save the UK or Pod Save the UK on Instagram.
0: And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Spotify, Amazon or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Shout out to the novel Coronavirus.